you please pronounce your name correctly for me? Norwegian way to say it is Erling Kagge, but I'm not very fussy on it. So, you know, please feel free to call me whatever you like. Okay, let me try it. Erling? Yeah, your Norwegian is improving. I, well, I have a partner, uh, Kunst Centrene i Norge. And so, so I've been trying to learn my pronunciation. <laughs> Matthew is easier. Yeah, well, they, they, we get I get Matthew a lot. Yeah, or Matthias is is a very common one as well. But it's fine. My wife is Czech, so like I've just learned to accept these things. <laughs> now you do many things in your life, or you ha- I should say you have done many things in your life. So like I guess the question, because of course we can all research what you have done. What do you do in these days? I'm a book publisher, so I started this book publishing company 25 years ago to be able to have an interesting job, but also to, you know, live a family life and have a job. I enjoy it. It's kind of the best of, you know, the commercial world and the intellectual world every day. So it's a good job. What what kind of books are they focused on publishing these days? We do all kinds of books. We publish around 100 new titles every year. That's a lot. It has become quite big. It's the biggest now in Norway on Norwegian nonfiction. So, but we also do children books, fiction, you know, great variety. No art books, no monographs? <laughs> I can't afford to do art books, I think. <laughs> I wrote one myself called Poor Collector's Guide to Buying Great Art, and that one is doing well, actually. Well, and that's one of my big questions is, of course, you wrote this book. It got published back in 2015. And my, my, I wonder, how, what has changed since 2015 when you're, with your experiences in the art world? I mean, not obviously with pandemic, but I mean, just in general with the internet and social media and all the other things that have come up. I think, you know, the, kind of the basic is still the same in the sense that as many people have said before me, like great art is great art and everything else is everything else. But of course, you know, when you look kind of, you know, the details, many things have changed. As I said, like, you know, the digital world, the way they sell art, promote art, tell about art, and of course about artists have totally changed, changed in a great way. And also, of course, the focus on like, you know, when I started off as a collector, it was mostly white male artists. That was kind of at least, you know, a major part of the art world. And of course, today that has changed. So it's in that sense, many substantial changes. Is that an important thing for you these days to to make sure to have, I guess the easiest word is like representation? Yeah, you know, it has always been important for me. I'm not collecting art to be kind. I collect because I would like to build a great collection. And, you know, according to my own taste and feelings and different experiences. But when I started out collecting, it was just obvious that art made by female artists were lower priced than art made kind of the same quality made by male artists. So I started out buying a lot of female artists, of course. Okay, help me out. I've wondered this one, and I've asked this numerous times to other people. Why are female artists valued lower than male artists? I guess you should ask some, some you know, historians on this, on the history of gender. But it has been like this throughout the history for as long as I'm aware that in art has been 
you know, mostly not been made by men, but mostly, you know, the art that has been promoted and shown in a great extent has been made by men. You know, even go further. I think, you know, when I started out collecting, as I also write about in the book, like, you know, it was not only men and white men, but also like, you know, quite often white men from a privileged background. Nothing wrong with having a privileged background, but of course you're missing out on lots of great art when they are in favor. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's it's interesting the 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 way that basically the the art history has been written by the victors, basically. Yeah, absolutely. And also not only written, but also kind of you know fully organized and paid for and et cetera, et cetera. So I'm sure we have been missing out. You know, obviously I've been missing out on some really really great art. Well, and I wonder. Okay, you're all you're up in Norway. Where are you in Oslo, or where are you? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I was raised and grew up in Oslo, and I still live here. And you know, I used to travel all the time, but now, due to the pandemic, I have spent most of my time in Norway, which has been great. Now, do you feel like you're connected to the greater art world? I mean, I know you go to art fairs and things like this, but like, is it does it feel like you're a bit separated living? sort of at the edge of Europe? <laughs> Close to the North Pole. Yeah, you know, in one way, yes, and all the way, no. Yes, in the sense that I feel very much connected to the art world. And obviously, if you live in New York, you know, you're more able to see more great art in the flesh. But you know, when I speak to people living in New York, you know, somehow they don't see more great art than me in the flesh. So I feel very much connected. But then, on the other hand, being this far away... You're not kind of part of the rumor mill, for instance, like you don't meet people at cafes and listen to, you know, what's the latest, blah, blah, blah. So you're kind of missing on, on, you know, a little part of the folkgeist, whatever you're going to call it. But that's okay. But, you know, I have focus on uh, trying to live a rich life. So I really don't have time either for all this kind of blah, blah, blah. So in that sense, you know, it's also an advantage to be a little bit away. I totally understand because I know a lot of people that lived in New York and they're always like, I live in New York and I love being in New York, but like they don't have time to really participate in the things that tourists sort of perceive as like the New York lifestyle because they got to make so much money to live there. Yeah, you know, New York, I love New York, but New York is very much about making money. But, you know, it's the same all over the world. If you're really close to something, you know, you quite often you don't care that much. But, you know, when people tell you that don't have time, uh, <laughs> that's obviously they tell the truth in the sense that that's how they feel. But I think it's in general, it's wrong in the sense that average people today spend like four hours daily doing social media. If you live, you know, until 83, 84, whatever the average, that adds up to about 120,000 hours of your life or about 13 years day and night you know that's why you feel you're short on time and why you feel life is short but you know life is long if you don't waste it we do waste it a lot i do i know i do for sure it's sad it's okay yeah but you know i think it's important because when you get older than you and me you know in turns 70 80 90 years old you know when you listen to what people talking about it, you know, they're kind of saying like this old Swedish poet who wrote something like, you know, all these days and weeks and months that passed by, I didn't really understand that was life. 
it's banal, but it's also kind of deep. Um, you know, you should just make sure not ending up in that situation. Yeah, I always say that I want my life to be a lot of great stories. Exactly. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> wow. Yeah, you've done some amazing things in your life, no doubt. <laughs> but let's get to the sort of the, the art collecting part, because that's the thing, of course, that fascinates me the most. So I've read a little bit about you. I know the sort of like how you started and stuff, but like, so right now you have how, like, what does your collection look like? How many pieces do you have these days? You know, I don't really count, but I think it's around 800 pieces. Okay. And are you still buying? Absolutely. <laughs> so, so the thing all artists want to know is like, how do or what do collectors? So in this case, what do you look for when you're like saying, like, I mean, you know, because like the average bot person who buys art would be, I need something to match my curtains and my sofa. But you, I'm sure, are not that reason. So you have other reasons why you buy a piece of art. So what would that some of those be? Absolutely. I think, you know, it's, as you say, Matthew, you know, one way is to buy art because you would like to have something nice in your living room that kind of fit your sofa or whatever. But I think as a collector, first of all, you know, I think you need to collect with your heart and somehow follow your own path. Obviously, you need to listen to people and you need to read a lot in addition to seeing art because art collecting is not about having the perfect eye. I don't think the perfect eye exists. I think you collect with your eyes, with your ears, and with your nose. And I also think, like, you know, for me, who, you know, I had to work a lot to be able to pay my bills and pay for my kids' education, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't have time to study art every day, all day. And that's why I also need to be ahead of my own taste. Like, you know, quite often people ask, like, you know, do you buy things you don't like or do you only buy things you like? Of course, I buy things and don't necessarily like. I think all this like culture has gone way too far. Life is much more fun and complex than you can measure it in like or dislikes. So what I quite often do, I see something, I get curious about it, I start to wonder if this is something I can grow with, if this is something which I will find more interesting time to come, um, then I buy it if I think so. I'm never 100% certain. I think, you know, I'm never 100% certain on anything in life, partly because I've been wrong on almost everything so far, but also because I think the pandemic has taught us that nothing is certain. But then I buy it and then, you know, I live with it for a while, maybe take it, you know, away and then back into the house. So, you know, to live with art and to grow with the art. And I don't care about if it's painting or drawing, installation or video, whatever, you know, medium it is. I just go for it. And I also like to collect artists in depth. It's a great privilege. And I can't give a really rational answer either. It's a kind of irrational thing to do. But also, like, but lastly, I have to also add that, you know, you need to believe I think if you're going to collect contemporary art, you need to believe. If you collect older art, that art historians, etc., already judge whether it's great or not. You know, you can just believe in them. But if you collect contemporary art, you need to believe in what you're doing. You need to believe in what you're seeing. And I think that's super important. So if you don't believe, you should stay away from uh, 
contemporary art. You should probably stay away from love and many other important things in life too. Well, I read some articles where you talked about how you like collecting younger artists. And and th that belief position, I think, comes into that a lot because you sort of have to have a little bit of faith that these people will continue to make art, A, and B, they will continue to make good art in some way in the future. Yeah? Yeah. You know, it's I buy young art for several reasons. One is that it's more difficult, and I believe in making life more difficult than it has to be. As a Norwegian, obviously, if I had been born in southern Sudan, it would have been different. But as a Norwegian, I'd like to make it more difficult. And also, it's also more interesting in the sense that to follow a career, because you really are, you know, so many good and bad things can happen in that career. So it's kind of interesting to be early on. And of course, also price-wise, you know, you get in on more sympathetic level. But of course, then again, you know, if the artists stop making great art or something else sad is happening, it didn't make sense after all. But I don't think about buying art as investments. I more think about it as consumption in the sense that I don't expect to get a huge return. I love a good deal and I don't want to pay more than necessary, but I don't think about it as investment. So whenever a journalist calls me up and asks about how to invest in art, I just say I'm not the right person. Yeah, I don't know anything about how to invest in art. No, even your dentist will ask you if you're into art world, you know, what can I buy that can improve in value? You can buy lots of things in life that'll do better, more reliably than art. Absolutely. But you can't hang it on the wall or place it on the floor. That's a big difference. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah. That's beauty of art that you can actually live with it and be a part of it. So it's uh, for me, it's not a hobby. It's a lifestyle. I just love it. Well, you mentioned that you like sort of in-depth purchasing. So it sounds like you buy like a number of pieces from an artist. Because um, I know some collectors that only buy like the one piece by an artist that truly moves them and connects with them. And then I know others that sort of run down the line of sort of being a patron for decades and supporting them over their lifetime kind of thing. So where do you fall sort of in that spectrum? Not the first one. It's a few artists I have kind of one piece because I think it's a super important artist and I came in late and just want to have one great piece. But in general, I buy, you know, from three or four or five up to 25 pieces or 30 pieces of an artist I'm interested in. So I go all the way. I'm not the kind of guy who's <laughs> settling with a little bit. I want it all. That's a lot from a single artist, 25 to 30 pieces? Yeah, 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 yeah. But you know, if you happen to buy Raymond Pettibon at, a, <laughs> I wouldn't say even an early stage, but you know, at the stage where it's still kind of reasonable to buy, well, you can still buy it at auction actually fairly reasonable. So then I just kept on buying. And uh, I'm not the kind of guy who's regretting that many things. So, you know, uh, I'm happy. But, you know, if I hadn't bought that Raymond Pettibon, I would spend the money on something else. So it's because for many years I spent everything I have on large. Now, do you have, okay, I'm wondering, I've always, interested in collectors like do you have everything you own on display do you have storage like how do you manage the the sheer sort of space that's necessary for all this 
I don't think anyone in the world has space at home to have 800 works. <laughs> I don't know the size of your home, so. No, no, <laughs> but I'm not living in Brunei. I'm not a sultan in that country, but I'm living with the art in the sense that I'm circulating a lot. I'm filling up the house with art. And so I'm very much also physically connected to the art. But of course, I need to have a warehouse, but I also have an office where I have my art. And then the last year and a half, I had three major museum shows with my art in Museion in Bolzano, Italy, and Fondation van Gogh in Ireland, in France, and Sala Santander in Madrid, Spain. So, you know, that's unbelievable, you know, great way, privileged way to see your art being curated by top people at Museion and the two other shows by Beach Kurigir. So that was, you know, that's a great way to see art. Well, now you're building out this huge collection and you even talked about sort of like wanting to build a good collection, but like, what's your hope for the legacy of this collection? So are you going to, at some point, you know, pass it on to your children? Is this going to be passed on to a museum? Do you want it to be known as a collection of blah, blah, blah? Like, do you have a focus like Norwegian, Scandinavian works? Like, What's the legacy that you're hoping to build with this collection? So far, not much. I haven't been thinking that way. It's, you know, I'm 58 years old. And as most of the people age 55, I really hope, 58, I really hope to live for a long, long time. And as a kid, so what to do with it? It's difficult because, you know, it's a very expensive lifestyle just to keep it, you know, it's in shape and... Uh, store it well, insurance, it's expensive. So you can't really expect anyone to earn that much money. I have been very fortunate in my life to earn good money, but you never know. So, and in terms of museums, yeah, maybe I think, you know, parts of it will be given away to museums and hopefully some of my kids would also like to have some of the art, you know, at their homes, but it's way too much. And also some of the pieces are too important, you know, to have it in public places. All right. So when you're playing, I guess, let me take this back a step. So like, how in your mind do you buy art? Now, let me, I'll give you my example of what I'm trying to figure out. Do you have a budget where you sit down and say like, okay, this year I have this amount of money to buy art, or is it, do you fall in love with things and then you spend whatever's necessary? You know, <laughs> sometimes I wish I had a budget I would be follow, but I think for most art collectors, like, you know, your budget somehow ends up being a slave to your passions. Like, you know, you start with the passions and then <laughs> you have to solve financial challenges afterwards. So it's touch with not recently, but like, you know, quite a lot when I started out collecting art 22 years ago. I was laying awake at night, you know, cold sweating, being nervous about all the money I'd spend in Art Basel. So yes, as I said earlier on, it's not rational if, I had been more rational. I would never collected so much art. And I wouldn't work with a self-ball either. Okay. And how do you find your artists? So you, you mentioned, and I've also read things about how you find trusted partners. So are you purchasing through uh, like uh, advisors, uh, galleries, or are you going directly to artists? So like, what's your sort of methodology? You know, the best would be if I had, you know, such great eye and understanding that I could just walk into academy or whatever and just pick the best art from the best artists right away. 
but I'm not that good. I'm not, you know, and also time wise, it doesn't make sense to me. So I need to trust other people. So I trust great gallerists. So I wait, not all the time, but almost all the time. I have a few exceptions actually that I bought art from artists before they had a gallery, like Anne Imhoff and also Alex Hubbard and a few artists. But I like to hang out and deal with gallerists that kind of share my own tastes and values. And they pick an artist and then I start to look into the artists. And then I have gallerists in many parts of the world that, you know, that are great galleries and they usually offer me some of the best they have at an early stage. And then I stay loyal to them because they are loyal to me and most importantly, because they have a great talent for finding great artists. Yeah, I've often heard the relationship between whether it's gallerist and artist or gallerists and collectors is kind of like dating. Like you try and really find just that right match of concept, aesthetics, you know, their you know, their eye, their skill level. But fortunately you don't need to sleep with them. That's a, that's good. But you know, it's really close. I'm really to some gallerist, I'm I'm very close. Which again, you know, I didn't start collect art because I want to have more friends. But you know, it's the social side it's kind of a, a side thing, but it's also very, very important, both with the gallerist and also with the artists. Now, I saw a thing where you have sold some pieces, but do you sell your works on a regular basis? So like, is your collection sort of growing and then sort of selling and then regrowing kind of thing? Or is it more keeping and less selling? It's definitely more keeping. I, you know, one way it would make sense to be better at selling i've been good at buying art but not so good at selling art but it's you know the mindset it's like if you buy and sell back and forth you know you need to think like a trader and it's nothing wrong with it but it's kind of not for me i prefer to buy art and keep the art but sometimes some pieces i have have increased 50 times and even once a hundred times in value then i can get more found of the money than the art piece sell the art piece and spend the money on buying you know other art so then you know a corrupt russian oligarch or something can have have the painting and uh, <laughs> i get the money and because you know i always been short of money i spent all my money on buying a nice house for me and my family and after that i spent everything i earned on art for many many years well before that it was on doing you know world traveling expeditions yeah, so then I neither had money nor time to buy art, but I was seeing art all the time through the 80s and 90s. But I never had the means nor the time to kind of, you know, start to start to buy. In the 80s and 90s, I bought maybe one or two pieces a year, and I lived with it, and I enjoyed it. But I don't think I bought that as art collecting. Yeah, what what... what? Was that transition from like buying a couple pieces to sort of really thinking, I want to be a collector? In the late 90s, I started to earn good money. I bought this house where I'm still living. And I didn't want to, you know, buy cars and summer houses and all the usual stuff that Norwegians spend money on or stocks or real estate projects and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, my heart was with the art. I understood that a lot of Norwegian art, local art, was very highly priced because of so much money in circulation in Norway. So I saw that, you know, in London and New York, you could buy world-class artists 
for less than you bought a local artist in Norway. So I start to buy international art. And of course, you also had some Norwegian, great Norwegian artists that are international. So it's so I kind of went outside Norway, start to buy. I met this gallerist called Atle Gerardsen early on in Berlin. He introduced me to great gallerists, great artists. Um, I loved it. And also, I have to add, late 90s, I went to Astro Furley Museum. I saw this diptych by Richard Prince, cowboys riding on a horse. And I just felt, if this Norwegian is able to buy such great art, so should I be. So that kind of, until then, I thought it was, you know, almost too difficult because, you know, so many galleries are playing a game, you know, getting hard to get hold of. And, you know, all they want is to sell you some art, but, you know, they try to, you know, what do you call it in English? Like, you know, take the nose high up in the air, don't want to speak with you. You know, it's, it's on hold, blah, blah, blah. But when I got past that barrier, it has been great since. It is a bit of a barrier. Like I've worked in galleries and I've also, of course, gone into galleries. And there is that sort of elitist nature to that, that once you start buying somehow, like the galleries are more accepting. And once, of course, you get articles written about you and write a book called the, you know, the, a poor collector's guide to buying great art, like suddenly people recognize you and they're, they're a bit more excited and, and inviting to you. Yeah, absolutely. That approach to customers is, you know, it's just simply pathetic. But, you know, it has been some rough times every now and then since. So I think, you know, the art world has become slightly more democratic too. They can't really afford to treat people like shit. So I think it's better now, but it's probably, you know, still a barrier to get into it. But it's definitely possible. I just advise people, if you find some galleries that kind of show art that you may come to appreciate or already appreciate, you know, get to know the people and buy one or two pieces, pay your invoice right away and be kind, you know, say even thank you because they sold you the piece, be interested, ask questions. And that's how you start to build a relationship to, with a gallerist, you know, with other words, be curious and be kind. Okay. Speaking of that, do you meet the artists also, or do you only deal with like gallerists or sort of middle people? The gallerist is the most important person for me in the art world because they kind of, you know, they decide if you're going to get a really great piece or <laughs> not such a great piece from the same show. So they are the most important. Then you end up meeting the artists, kind of some of the artists become friends, which I very much enjoy. As I said earlier on, I didn't start to collect to get new friends, but then you end up getting some friends and also some of the artists. I think today, not all the artists, but kind of most of the artists I collect, I know a little bit or know quite well. And as an art collector, it's nice, but many things in life are nice. But what's interesting is that when the artist, when you get to know the artist and you can tell that the artist is almost one-to-one -one with the art she or he is making, that's a very good sign. Because sometimes you collect art and uh, then you meet the artist and the artist is a very different person from the art, which is a bad sign. So it's like, you know, I'm a book publisher, as I said, like, you know, somehow very seldom you manage to make a more exciting book than the person you are yourself. It, it happens though, which could be a very good thing. But, you know, in general, 
people not able to. It's a great analogy. I love it. Now, okay, then when it comes down to it, because keep in mind, okay, I'm a professor and I'm also a practicing artist myself. So I always wonder about these kinds of little nuances of how collectors make decisions. When you see, okay, so you go to a gallery, so the gallery says, hey, there's this great new artist here, we're having a show. When you go, so devoid of the artist or the gallerist, of when you're experiencing it, what's the sort of level of importance of the quality of the work versus, let's say, the statement or their CV or basically the, any of the text kind of things that you can, that is context for the work? Not so much any of the text. And, you know, quite often the artists don't have that impressive CV. So, no, it's the art piece in itself. I think, you know, it's for a while, you know, everybody had graduated from Städel in Frankfurt will, you know, be very, very hot. And, you know, many great artists came from that academy. But it's, no, I think, you know, you have to look at the art piece and hopefully also some other art pieces the same artist has made. So you kind of get kind of, you know, see what more it's about because just to see one art piece and buy it without knowing anything else it's that's very very difficult i think nice okay so you're looking for somebody with a little bit of a track record or at least has built out a a full body of work yeah you know i wish as i said i had been better at collecting art and earlier but you know i'm not so it's people are sending me emails and offering their works and you know it's nice but it's not for me that never works, does it? No, maybe for some, but I chose what I should collect and also who I should buy from. And that was from gallerists that, you know, sell me art that I can appreciate, to a price I can afford. So you never do studio visits or anything like that? Oh, yeah, yeah, it happens. Not so often because, you know, when I don't buy, the artists get a bit disappointed, but it happens. Like I said, like, you know, I went to Alex Hubbard's studio in New York with Ivan Furnesvik from Standard Gallery before Alex had a permanent gallery and bought two great paintings. I think I bought a video too. So it's these two paintings that day. That was great, but of course then I knew he was going to get the gallery, etc. But it was a very interesting visit and uh, I got great respect for what he was doing. You mentioned that you collect basically lots of different mediums. So I heard painting, prints, video, all this. Like, So do you have some sort of criteria in your mind of like things that you like to collect versus like specifically, I guess, mediums that you like to collect versus others? I end up with many wall pieces, but, you know, it depends on the artist. Like if you collect like Clara Lidén, Clara Leiden, or Trisha Donnelly, or Seal Floyer, or, you know, these kind of artists, it doesn't make sense to, you know, just collect art pieces, no, wall pieces. You need the videos, you need installations, you need you know, sculptures, you know, it's etc. So it very much depends on the artist. If it's an artist I'm really interested in, I go all the way. I'm always fascinated. Okay, I don't make video art, but I'm always interested. Like, so when it comes to video art, when you buy it, what do you get? Like a USB drive with it or like the film itself, like on a reel? Still get kind of the physical cassette, actually. Uh-huh. Just last time I looked. But then, of course, you know, you also get like, if I'm going to lend it to a museum or something, I just ask them to get the video from the gallery and send them on digitally. And then you get the certificate. Ooh certificates that's a fa- okay 
I'm a bit OCD about certificates of authenticity. Like I create this whole thing. I do works on paper. So I do like matching numbered holograms on the back of a the piece to the uh, certificate of authenticity. And I'd like do it all up. I put like everything that's used, you know, every paper, every ink, every everything listed on. How important is this kind of stuff? Am I going overboard? I think if it's a signed piece, I don't think you need a certificate. But for a video, you know, for Lawrence Wiener wall painting, you certainly need a certificate. All right. I, but I guess in the future, lots of these certificates will be on NFTs, so you don't need to keep them physically anymore. Are you buying NFTs? No, it's. Uh, <laughs> I think it makes sense in many ways. Like, you know, instead of having a certificate for an art piece, you can have an NFT. So, you know, in many ways, it makes sense. It's not about being negative to NFTs, but of course, today it's absolutely hyped and lots of insider trading and the price manipulations, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm just surprised that, you know, it's my favorite paper is uh, Financial Times. I'm just surprised they're not, you know, writing about what's going on. Yeah, I personally think it's just a money laundering scheme at this point. It's not only that, but, you know, it's also money laundering. And it's many things, but, you know, I wish a journalist sat down and maybe someone had done it and hadn't seen it. Just write, you know, proper articles of what it is really about. But it's also, you know, it also makes sense with NFTs for many art pieces. So it's not like, you know, as I said, it's not something to be against. But as of today, it's not regulated, but it's a, it's a crazy market. And uh, you can, you know, you can launder money. You can do many things. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm optimistic that it will sort of work itself out and figure out the best way for it to do. But I think at the moment, it's not its best self yet. It's like cryptocurrency. Like, you know, you have first generation, then you have second generation. And now we're starting to see a third generation cryptocurrency emerging. So it's nothing to be say that's not to be against because, of course, cryptocurrency has a great future. But I think maybe the first generation cryptocurrencies will have, you know, more limited future. Unfortunately, I know nothing about cryptocurrency, so I can't really talk about that. I think it's good for you. <laughs> I don't know. Back in like, what was it? It was like 2009. I had the opportunity to participate in Bitcoin and I didn't. And I was, now I'm like, fuck, I should have done that. You know, financially, obviously you should. But I think the problem is, you know, it's kind of limited how clever you are smart you are and uh, you know not only you but also me so if you're going to speculate on on cryptocurrencies you know you really don't have the surplus to be a great artist or write or publisher or whatever at the same time so i think you need to make choices for my life for instance i do very little hardly any speculation because it's just rips my mind apart and i'm checking news all the time and I don't have surplus to live the life I'm living now. So I don't regret not buying a Bitcoin or Tesla early or whatever, because, you know, then I've been a different person, richer and more boring. So, you know, there is, yeah, that is a balancing act. But speaking of that, you like, you mentioned that you don't like, you don't live with regrets, but like, are there any things that you either did get the opportunity to buy that you regret buying? or anything that you missed out on and you regret sort of missing out on it? 
Last question first. Yeah, I mean, every art collector has been missing out on so many great pieces. So it's just unbelievable to think about everything I've been missing out on. Well, but is it missing out because you didn't like do it fast enough or didn't believe in the person or whatever? Like, what, how, why do you miss out? Is it, is it a, your action or somebody else's action? Could be all those reasons, but also, you know, it could also be a personal thing, like you're not in the mood for buying art for a while because, you know, you feel tired or you're just busy with all those matters. Or maybe you're short on money for a while, so you can't really kind of go for it. Or you have been buying a lot of art for a while and, you know, just kind of, you know, just need a little break. So it could be many rational and irrational explanations. And of course, it could also be that, you know, you're just not smart enough, you, know, you don't get it. And then, you know, it's that's why I said you have to be ahead of your own taste because you can't wait for, you know, sometimes, you know, you get it, other times, talk for myself i'm just too slow to get it and then i just have to buy it before i get it and sometimes i don't and usually that's a good idea but other occasions it has been a mistake well and you mentioned that earlier which is like you try to buy sort of in advance of where you are you know works that challenge you have you ever bought something that you were hoping would challenge you and then you were like no yeah I'm sure I have, you know, many times, but I'm trying to learn from my mistakes, but I'm not like, you know, it's, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And then, you know, we have it for a while and then, you know, maybe you take it out again and then it starts to make sense again. I think a great art sometimes, you know, it's just so complicated. It's kind of, you know, it's hard to say if it was a good buy or not a good buy, I think. So now you've got this collection that's being exhibited in museums. Have you at, like gotten to a point where you've like hired a conservator to like help you store everything well and keep everything maintained? I probably should see that you know my peers they have one or two at least full employees. Um, I have a friend, a girl Tuva, who helps me out with the collection. But in general, I do most things myself. Somehow that makes sense, being the you know explorer that you are, that you do everything yourself. Yeah, but also like you know, if you employ a person, it costs money, and then you can buy less art. Everything's about buying art with you. I love it. <laughs> All right. Um, so let's finish this up. I got two questions I generally end with. So first one is easy. I, I hope. Um, are there three contemporary artists that you're looking at these days? Yes, more than three. Well, you're welcome to list more than three, but yeah, a little bit of why also would be great. But you know, it's I'm not good at. It's nothing secretive about it, but it's more like you know, it's people like to know one artist they should look at, blah blah blah. But like you know, it's I think it's a little bit unfair. I would look at new artist whoever arrives at modern institute in glasgow or say the calls whatever in london arena smalling in new york sean regan in la standard here oslo gallery Neu in berlin etc etc whenever they have a new artist coming i will check he or she out well that, that's okay let's take it back because i understand the, the a lot of collectors don't like talking about who they're looking at because then things get crazy and all that not because it get crazy but more like you know it's i think in general people should not have three artists that i pick and they should try to pick the same and look for it so i'm not concerned about 
price hikes and blah, blah, blah. As I said, I have a good relationship to the gallery, so I will be able to buy it ahead of whoever comes anyway. Yeah, I think, you know, if you look at the gallery together, like, you know, standard in Oslo, you know, it's Matthias Fallbakken, of course, Oscar Tuason, this new Iranian artist called Asal, Mare Slotteli, Gaidar Einarsson, Chadwick. You know, it's only in that gallery you will find uh, Torben Rødland. Only in that gallery you will find, you know, 10, 12 artists that are worth watching and who are all international. Also, Norwegian artists are, you know, truly international. I mean, it's huge opportunities to buy great art. It's made so much art in the world today. And I think, you know, also in the foreseeable future, so much more than the demand side. So I think the supply side will always be bigger than the demand side. Sadly, that's true. Yeah. (laughs) From my side as an artist. Now, okay, one thing that I want to take a step back. You're in Norway and you are full-on Norwegian. What do you think about the the way that the Norwegian culture sort of supports the arts? Because I've heard debates about like the way that they support artists and arts in general. I think, you know, it's many good things with it in the sense like, you know, in contemporary art as we are talking about, I think it's many reasons why Norwegians are doing well internationally. And first of all, I think, you know, in period now, the first time since the turn of the 19th century, 120 years ago, that many Norwegians are actually making great art. That's, of course, the most important. But one of the reasons they're doing so is because, you know, they're traveling, they're coming back again. International artists are coming to Norway. There's lots of interaction. And collectors, Museum Astrofernig, etc. But also, like, one of the many reasons is because the Norwegian government is supporting many of these artists. They can have shows internationally. They can travel. They can stay abroad for a while. So I think, you know, this in general, maybe not in all the details, but in general, this is working well. But on the other hand, in Norway, it's so many artists who get support from the government and so many writers and so many like this. So that sense, they're kind of employed by the government. And that, again, is risky because, you know, I remember my mother taught me when I was a kid that, you know, we need intellectuals to stand up with their own opinions against the power, against the government, against, you know, whatever. But of course, if you're paid by the government, it's not so tempting to criticize the government. So, you know, sometimes I'm wondering in Norway that we don't, you know, we don't need many intellectuals in Norway. We need one because they kind of all agree. It's not that bad, though, but it's a paradox that, you know, I remember the elections in Norway in 2013, the national elections, it's the artists and the authors and all their associations were parading the street in support of the present government. So I, th- I think that's probably the only democracy in the world where all the kind of intellectuals, all the artists are kind of marching the streets with banners and shouting in favor of the present government. So then you can wonder, you know, what is the use of having them? Well, I mean, it's an interesting thing because I come from America, of course, which is the arts and government oftentimes are either at odds or not in support of one another in so many different ways and and also not entwined together. And I mean, as much as I really, really love the amount of support that is given by the Norwegian government, 
it does beg that question of like, is it just basically end up being a, a sort of art by committee? Because like basically they have to do the artists have to kowtow to the governmental whims and their political positions in the creation of their art. You know, like are certain artists getting these salaries and these supports because they do something that's sort of liked by the uh, the political establishment? Definitely, yes. I think, you know, for many artists in Norway, it's like, you know, it's like being a Disneyland with a VIP card. It's like, you know, it's, you will, you know, you have prioritized and you will be well off and you will have ice cream whenever you please. But having said that, I think, you know, a system like this is super generous. It's a bit naive, but the consequence is that it is fantastic art being made in Norway today. We have, you know, really great literature coming from Norway translated to, you know, dozens and dozens of languages. So, you know, somehow it works and we can afford it because we have the oil. And of course, also many people, all artists are criticized, you know, to the oil industry, but of course it's the oil industry who's making it all possible that, you know, people can live like this. So, but anyway, so I think it's like, you know, it's easy to criticize, but the result is at this, you know, at the top end. It's really, really good. Oh, yeah. I lived in the United Arab Emirates before I moved to Prague. So, like, <laughs> I was there for two days. <laughs> what do you think? I was in Dubai. I think, you know, it's I'm happy I went. Or maybe I was there for three days, but, you know, everything is man made. And I think, you know, it's just said to last here in the podcast, like, you know, I think for me who spent lots of time in the wilderness in nature like you know you learn that the most important things in life don't have any lasting forms and i think when in dubai it's very easy to forget because everything is about objects and material matters no moral judgment but to me that's just very boring oh yeah i refer to dubai as the vegas of the middle east yeah but at least vegas is a trend center <laughs> Well, Middle East, yes. I mean, I enjoyed my time there. I was there for six years, five years, six years. I enjoyed it, but I'm glad I got out without being arrested. Exactly. Yeah, me too. After three days, I was happy I didn't get arrested. Yeah. All right, last little question. Any advice for the next generation? So it could be of next generation of artists or collectors, up to you. I think, you know, the most important is to get up from bed in the morning. Very simple, okay. I remember in the walk to the North Pole, they said, think ahead, travel light, and leave affairs behind. That's, I think, it's a good advice for an art collector too, and for an artist. Lovely. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> All the best from Norway. Fortsatt god tur, as we say in Norwegian. I hope you enjoyed and learned something from our conversation. After all, I am a professor. I like learning. I've learned a lot myself about many of the things that I did wrong in my career thus far and many of the things that I need to put more effort into moving forward. I hope this podcast has inspired and assisted you in becoming more successful in your creative endeavors. If you like the podcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating and a nice comment would be greatly appreciated. I would also like to thank Ron Helt for their comment and five-star rating. Thank you, Ron Helt. R 
N-O-H-E-L-T-T. Don't know how to pronounce it correctly. I hope I got it right. Please tell your friends to listen and subscribe as well. You can subscribe on Apple's podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. The audio was edited by Jakub Czerny, and the music was created by my childhood friend, Pete Bybee. Thanks, Pete. The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes, or you can find out more information about the podcast on Instagram at the wise fool pod or on our website which is simply wisefoolpod.com